We read scripture this morning from Romans chapter 12. We'll read Romans 12 and then into chapter 13 through verse 7. And we do so in connection with the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment of God's law teaches us, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. In that connection, we hear the inspired word of God from Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. In honor, preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. And if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. 
Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. We read this in connection, as I stated, with the fifth commandment as explained in Lord's Day 39. We have in question 104 on page 22 in the back of our Psalters that explanation. What doth God require in the fifth commandment? That I show all honor, love, and fidelity to my father and mother and all in authority over me and submit myself to their good instruction and correction with due obedience and also patiently bear with their weaknesses and infirmities since it pleases God to govern us by their hand. Our fa- Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we read the Ten Commandments once again as we do every Sunday. We seek to be reminded of the law of God and we're given time to evaluate our lives over against God's will and God's command. Am I walking in thankful obedience or not? And we might ask ourselves, is this a good use of the law? Do we take God's law maybe too seriously? Most other churches aren't reading the law every Sunday. Is this the kind of attention that God desires be given to his commandments? There are even some churches that would insist that in the New Testament time, those laws don't apply any longer. And therefore, for us now to go back and to impose those laws upon the church today is to bring the church into bondage. Not the liberty that God has called the New Testament church to live out of. And so as we evaluate that question again, as we consider the law, it's important that we understand that Christ and the disciples emphatically taught these commandments. Emphatically taught that Christ did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And specifically this commandment, Paul reiterated again in in, uh, Ephesians 6. So that we have honor thy father and thy mother repeated by the apostle in the New Testament. Teaching us that God's commandments remain in effect. Now we know the wonder and the significance. We don't keep those commandments in order to get saved. Those commandments are the way in which we show our gratitude and our thankfulness for the salvation that God has given. And as thankful children of our heavenly father, we delight in our Father's will, and we desire to pursue that which is right and pleasing in His sight. And so Reformed churches throughout the years have always emphasized 
the importance of God's law for his church and for mankind. This morning we look at the fifth commandment. Honor thy father and thy mother. Again, this is a commandment that pricks us. A commandment that gets at our hearts. It's a commandment that exposes our pride. It exposes the fact that we don't esteem others above ourselves. It exposes the fact that we're not inclined to honor others above self. This command directs us to an evaluation of our heart. Romans 12 laid out in a very practical way the conforming that is necessary by God's grace. We're not conformed to the world, but we're transformed by the renewing of God's mind. And God's wondrous work is such that he gives us the spirit that we are willing and able with regard to those who are placed in authority over us to honor them, to submit to them, and to obey them. That's a wonder of grace. That's not something we would ordinarily or naturally do. But God works that wonder by his spirit in Jesus Christ. The principle of this commandment then is that all authority is God-given. And then we look at all of the various aspects of that authority. We have God establishing Jesus Christ as Lord of all. Christ now entrusting to various individuals that authority. Husbands over their wives. Parents over their children. Elders in the church with regard to the pastor and the deacons and the rest of the members of the congregation. God places civil officers in authority over their citizens. Employers have authority over their employees. So that each one of us finds us in a situation likely where we are both called to submit and we're called to rule. And to do so both for the glory and honor of God. And so we look at the fifth commandment, noting the basic principle, that matter of God being the authority. Secondly, the demand that God lays out here, honor. And finally, the promise. The Ten Commandments assume the family to be the basic unit of society. And that's striking. And that demonstrates that the Ten Commandments hearken back to creation. Not the fall, but creation. There are three commandments especially that are directly related to the family. We have the fifth, the seventh, and the tenth. The fifth here, honor your father and mother. The seventh, thou shalt not commit adultery. And then the tenth, don't covet. Another man's wife, another woman's husband. The efforts of the devil and society at large are to undermine the family and especially to destroy those commandments. And we see that in our day. Especially those commandments are under attack. And we see the effectiveness of the devil in undermining then the family as an institution and in that way causing an anti-Christian spirit to prevail in the world in which we live. We see it not only in children and young people who rebel against parents, rebel against authority. We hear from employers that young people don't want to work. They don't want to submit. They won't listen to employers. We hear it around us, but also adults who will not submit, whether it's to elders, to the government, 
unwilling to show that honor and that submission which God requires. And instead, eager to slander, to backbite, to involve themselves in full-blown riots, whatever it takes to promote my will. An independent spirit rules. And this commandment condemns that spirit. It reminds us we are not our own. We belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And our calling now is to live unto him in every aspect of our life. And to recognize the authority figures that he puts now in our lives. And so as Christians brought to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, this has a tremendous impact on my life, on my attitude, on how I interact with others. Now, if we try to just go back to the New Testament age and imagine the context of the apostle here as he was writing to the church at Rome and as he writes here in chapters 12 and 13 to that church, a church at Rome that was comprised of Jews and Gentiles who had been brought out of paganism then, brought into a confession concerning the truth, concerning Jesus Christ, imagine how earth-shattering this instruction would have been for them. They've just been brought to understand Jesus is their Lord, and they have to submit to Jesus Christ. Now that would be easy then for them to say, I don't have to submit then to these wicked people that are in authority over me. Why would me, a Jew, submit to Romans? And especially the Jews were very, very dead set against that kind of authority. Why would a Gentile submit to the powers of the world as he now is brought to confess Jesus as Lord? If Jesus is my ruler, then I submit to him alone. And now that I've been brought to know and to see the wonder of my salvation and the joy of his lordship, he's my Lord. I'll follow him, but I'm not going to follow anyone else. The Jews, as I stated, were already adverse to submitting to other authority. A foreign rule over them was extremely difficult for them to submit to. And even in their estimation, they would make reasons why it was contrary to the Bible and contrary to their law. And for that reason, the Jews were known to resist rule by foreign powers and were even known in the history and in the time period as being a somewhat rebellious people in that regard. This aversion made even more difficult by the fact that those higher powers were corrupt. They were godless. And in a very real way, they were persecuting the church. So if these powers were not looking out for their well-being, they were not ruling on behalf of Christ. The power was in the hands of those who were evil, those who were wicked, those who were using the sword against the church, who were persecuting the Christians, throwing them into arenas and feeding them to wild animals. In connection with that context now, the apostle, by the inspiration of the Spirit, comes to God's children and says, not only be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God, but then goes on to explain the importance then of humility, 
not honoring oneself above others, acknowledging the fact that you need to submit to those whom God puts in authority. Even to this extent, bless them that persecute you. How astounding! So that as the apostle writes this, it's only the power of God's grace that can enable Christians to say, this is what we need to do. This is the calling. This is not just the words of Paul. This is what God now requires of me. I may not recompense evil for evil. I need to treat them with a kindness and an honor that they don't deserve. And then leading the apostle then to say, don't take vengeance in your own hands. Verse 17, recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. And now, coming into chapter 13, let every soul be subject to the higher powers. The ruler was a man like Nero, who hated God and hated his church. And yet, the higher powers are the authority. You need to submit to them because God knows what he's doing. You can't understand it. You can't fathom it. But Jehovah God, in his inscrutable wisdom, has put these individuals now in these positions of authority, and you are now to submit to them for my sake, God says. Now, there's two basic assumptions then behind this commandment. Regardless of how corrupt, how evil, God is the source of all legitimate authority in the midst of this world. God is the source of all authority in every human relationship. In the Lord. That's crucial for us to understand. Authority now isn't the same as might or power or force. Might doesn't make right. Revolution and anarchy don't establish authority. Authority as the right to rule is ordained by God. And God establishes then all the various aspects and spheres of that authority. True rule now recognizes the authority of God. A husband in his home treats his wife and children in love on behalf of Christ. Rulers within the church, in the school, are called to labor on behalf of Christ. In positions of society, the calling is that Christ is the one who's now placed these individuals and now we rule on Christ's behalf. True obedience then recognizes that authority of God behind all of the authority figures in our lives. It's only the person who recognizes the authority of God and fears God and serves God for Christ's sake that is going to be able to keep this commandment. As Paul was speaking these words, it would be as a clanging symbol, apart from the work of God's grace now, penetrating the hearts of these Christians and giving them to understand and to believe. And so it is, beloved, for us. The only possibility of our overcoming our own independent spirit, our own selfish perspective, is the work of God's grace in our hearts and in our lives, giving us to see God's hand and to understand that God is the one that's ruling in all things, and my calling is to submit to Him. That's the premise of this commandment. But secondly, 
This commandment also establishes the family, as we stated, as the primary institution of authority. Eve was subject to her husband, Adam, by virtue of a creation ordinance. Again, in our day, in the realm of marriage, this is being despised, hated. God is the one that established this. And as husbands, we love our wives. And for Christ's sake, we rule then in a loving manner. And as wives, we submit to our husbands for God's sake, acknowledging God is the one who so is pleased to direct and to guide us by this one whom in love he has placed in my life. Children, subject to parents whom God sovereignly ordained as their parents. And from the home, that expands then to the school, the church, the employer, the employee, and to the civil relationship. In quoting the fifth commandment, both Ephesians and Colossians apply the principle then far beyond that of the home. And so though this commandment begins with the home, the application is far broader as the New Testament requires of us and as Romans 13 here establishes. All authority has its source in God. Romans 13 verse 1 Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. God alone, as we pray, is the power. And so we submit to Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. But not only do we confess God's sovereign power, we also confess, and He's my Father. He's the one who loves me. He's the one who owns me and bought me by his precious son's blood. And he's the one then who's guiding my life in a manner that he understands and knows is for my good and my salvation. And so God, as we stated, entrusts Jesus Christ now with that authority in celebration of Christ's ascension into heaven, seated at God's right hand as Lord. And Christ now is the servant of Jehovah, but he's the Lord of all mankind. The book of Hebrews especially puts great emphasis on the exalted place of Christ in Hebrews 1 and in Hebrews 2. We see Jesus made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned now with glory and crowned with honor. And already in the Old Testament, this was the hope and the expectation of the church. You read the Psalms. Psalm 2, Psalm 72, you have Psalm 89, many others, emphasizing the reality and wonder of the fact that God would send his Son who would be the Lord of all. All authority conferred upon Jesus Christ. And Christ now giving that authority to others who serve and rule on his behalf. He entrusts the sword power to the state. It's by Christ that parents have the right to rule over their children. It's by Christ that masters, employers, rule their employees. It's from Christ that the elders receive their authority to rule in the church. Authority has been conferred by God on the powers that be. Those individuals are placed in their position by God. It doesn't matter how they got there, whether it was by a majority vote or whether it was by force, they're in that position in and according to the providence of Jehovah God. And God gives then to the civil state the sword power. 
It's not true again that God instituted government as a result of the fall. Government precedes the fall. We would even say this, in heaven there is government. There's government among the angels. There will be government in heaven when we get there and when there is no sin. Government does not result from sin. It's not that which originates after the fall. It was already present prior to the fall as a creation ordinance developed in connection with the structure of the family and flowing out of God and God's sovereign governance as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, because of sin, God gives now to the magistrate the sword power, the power to punish evildoers and to protect those that do good. What is your and my calling then? God calls the church to have a right attitude toward those in authority. And that attitude must be that of subjection. We must subject ourselves in all things. We are not lords. Christ is our Lord. And Christ now requires of us that we have to subject ourselves to him and to his lordship. That means there's no justification for rebellion. We don't always obey. We understand that. We can't always obey. We have to obey God rather than men. But even in that situation, we have to pray for much wisdom. What is being required? How is it a violation of God's will and God's command? And then even consulting with brothers and sisters together in order together to come to a conclusion that this is a situation in which we are justified in our disobedience, even though we're required yet to honor and to submit. The devil seeks to use these kind of circumstances, again, to divide the church, as we witnessed through the times of COVID. But rebellion, that is taking up the sword or taking up arms against the government and against those that are in authority, is forbidden. If ever there was a time when the church could have found justification to do so, it would have been during this time when the apostle is writing here to the church at Rome. And God clearly forbid. Now some say as long as there's good governments, then we'll submit to them. Again, during the time of the apostles, there were no good governments. The government was corrupt. And what does God say? God still says, you need to keep doing good. You need to keep obeying as you have opportunity. You have to keep submitting. Go on with your worship. If the authorities turn against you, you need to subject to the higher powers, be willing to suffer for righteousness' sake, and even through that persecution, bless, don't curse. Watch your language, watch your conduct, watch your response and your attitude. All then who occupy positions of authority are called to rule for Christ's sake. That means they who rule are first of all servants. And that's important for us to understand. When God puts us in the circumstances in which he does, as husband or as parents or as elders or in society or with regard to the workplace, we must serve Jesus Christ as our Lord. We're responsible to answer to him. How did I conduct myself? How did I exercise the authority that was entrusted to me? Did I do so for the glory and honor of God? 
Now, not all are in that position of authority by grace. That's important, too, for us to note. The fact that they have a position of authority is not because of God's common grace or because of some general favor that God has toward all men. We know that grace is not common. Grace is particular. It's only to God's elect, and it's only in Christ. The explanation for these individuals in positions of authority who are wicked is God's providence. God according to his providence again. A providence by which he governs all things according to his hand and he does so with the goal of the salvation of his church and the glory of his name is the one who places these individuals in their respective positions. And he appoints them then to rule on his behalf. Those who are in subjection must obey for God's sake. Whoever resists the power resists God. Our motivation is not we need to obey because we're afraid of men or because of the consequences of our rebellion. If we rebel, there might be a payoff. No, it's not that. Our obedience is for God's sake. We love God. God has taken us and brought us to know the wonder of his goodness and grace. We know his name, a powerful name, and we submit then out of love for him and for his glory knowing that he's the one ruling my life in a perfect way as my father. And he's the one who knows what he is doing here with these individuals. And he's the one who also will work that grace to submit. And so what is the demand? Let's look more carefully at that demand then, that I show all honor, love, and fidelity and submit myself to their good instruction and correction with due obedience. So first, honor. And again, beloved, these are humbling. These convict us to the heart. Honor means to hold in high regard. Someone who honors someone else views that person as on a pedestal. That person is not an equal. That person is above me. Now the idea is not that you need to put that person on the pedestal. No, the idea is this. God is the one that put that person on the pedestal. They're already there. And now your calling is to honor them in terms of esteeming them as someone whom God has put on that pedestal above you. And God has called you now to serve that one in love. It doesn't matter what their qualifications are. It doesn't matter how they conduct themselves. All of that is irrelevant. It doesn't matter if they deserve the position. It doesn't matter. God gave it to them according to his perfect providence. And God now requires of us that we understand because God put them on that pedestal, because he put them as a superior to us, they have the right now to demand of us submission, honor, and obedience. And so we have to honor them. To honor means to respect then the position that they occupy. To hold them even in regard for that position that they occupy. To acknowledge they're not on the same level as me. I can't talk back to them. I can't disobey them without consequences. Your pastor, your teacher, your elders, your parents, your husband, your president have been lifted by God to that position. And we are to acknowledge then that position. And that's what honor is all about. Holding in regard. And acknowledging God is the one that has done this. And my calling now 
is not just to do it from an outward perspective, but from the heart to honor them for God's sake. But secondly, to love them. We would think honor is bad enough. No, God says it's not good enough just to honor and acknowledge them. You need to love them. Now, as always, love isn't a hollow emotion. Love isn't something that we just say, oh yeah, I love them, but we don't really from the heart mean it. It's not just an emotional, natural response. Love is an act of the will. It requires of us effort. It requires that concretely we say, I need to show love. It's a decision to seek the good of that individual. And again, we know this in marriage. We know this in relationship. God calls us to love. We don't feel like it. We don't want to. God says, that doesn't matter. You are instructed to do so. And you are required then to seek the good of that individual. Love is to seek out and to look for ways in which you can serve and do good. Give of yourself for that individual. When the object of your love is a child of God, your desire is stronger than that. It's to enter into a relationship with them. It's to have friendship with them. It's to have fellowship with them. It's together to glorify God. Honor, love. And so, as children, as young people, are you loving your parents? What does it mean for you to love your parents? It means that you seek their good and their fellowship because they're believers. God has placed them over you in love. And as such then, you're not avoiding them. You're not trying to avoid their company. You're not tolerating them. You're not just putting up with them. Love seeks to be with them. Love seeks to interact with them. Love seeks to give of yourself for them. To be thankful. God is the one that placed them now in your life and you want to give yourself for them. You're not expecting them to serve you in all things. You are serving them and you're looking for opportunities to do so. Again, it doesn't matter in a broader sense here. You may not like that person that God has put in authority. You may not like them one bit. God says, honor and love. Consciously seek their good. Consciously pursue ways that you can give of yourself for them. Seek fellowship with them as a fellow saint if they're a believer. And what else does love do? Love prays for them. Again, that's an emphasis that is laid out here in Romans 12. Acknowledging the different gifts that God gives to different individuals. Not allowing those gifts to create tension and envy, but rather esteeming, honoring, and then showing love. 2 Timothy 2 calls us to pray for those whom God has put in authority over us. And the ground and the reason for that prayer is this. God is pleased to gather his church from all different kinds of people. During the time of the apostles, they could not imagine that these leaders, these rulers, could possibly be saved. And God says, I am Jehovah. I can do all things. You need to pray for them because also numbered among those who are in authority over you in the civil state are those whom I have as my elect children and will be brought to salvation. 
Now, there may be situations then in those relationships where we have tension. Then we go to the brother, we go to the sister, we talk to our parents, we talk to our husband, we interact with our employer, we take time to sit down with elders, with a pastor, so that we resolve these matters in love because we don't want anything in the way of our honor and our love. And then finally, the catechism talks about fidelity. What is fidelity? Fidelity is another word for being faithful. How do you show that you're faithful? You keep the obligation that you have towards someone. You do what you need to do. If they require of you something, for instance, your parents, you need to do it. That's how you show fidelity. You're faithful as children, as young people, by doing what your parents require of you. You show fidelity toward your teacher by listening to your teacher and to her or his instruction, doing the assignments, doing the work that's required of you. You show fidelity to your boss by laboring diligently and faithfully in the calling in which God has put you with the gifts God gives. This implies that you're not turning against them to be talking evil, to be slandering them. It's not fidelity. It's to violate that calling. And again, beloved, for God's sake. Now, we're weak. We're sinful. We don't show the honor we should. We don't show that love. We are not faithful as we ought. And so we cry out for mercy, and God gives us to know forgiveness through Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit of Christ by which we can press on and we can do that which God sets before us for his sake. And so, beloved, how practically does this work? First, this attitude toward God and his authority in our lives must visibly be seen in your life. And here again, we go back to Romans 12. Don't be conformed to this world. The world isn't doing this. The world is filled with pride. Don't be conformed to the world. And now what you have to work on is your own mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You need to live according to the wonder that God has performed, giving you to know who you are, who God is, and the calling that is yours. The wicked may show outward honor. They may show some obedience to those in authority. But then what do they do? They turn around, they backbite, they slander, they stab them in the back in the most horrible of ways. They're two-faced. That must not be you and me. And again, we're shamed. How often is this not us? Our parents require of us something. We don't like it. We go blab to our friends about how unjust and evil our parents are. Something is required of us in the workplace. And our response is to talk evil, to talk against. Whether it's in the church, wherever. Our inclination is to be those who are two-faced. We'll act like we honor, we'll act like we obey, but then we show ourselves very different. But secondly, that honor, that love, and that fidelity must rise out of hearts then that love God, hearts that live for God. As those who love God, we desire to honor Him. We want to do what's right in His sight. And we want to show our obedience to God. And this commandment teaches us nothing is too small to consider. As we stand before God, there's no such thing as something that's minor. There's no small sin. That which we may consider small, insignificant, 
is so serious that it sent Jesus to the cross. We stand before God with a desire to honor, obey, to walk in fidelity toward those whom he places in authority. And that means then, we don't honor, we don't obey to get something. Sometimes we can be inclined to do that. As children, young people, we'll honor our parents because that means that we might get some money maybe or we might get something we want. And sometimes as parents, we foolishly hold before our children material benefits for obedience. Sometimes we can see some outward fruit, but what's going to happen is in order to attain that same outward fruit, we have to keep on giving more and more and more. And all that is is outward fruit. We want obedience from the heart. Children, young people, obey for God's sake. This is what God requires of you, and God gives you grace now to do it. We don't honor our boss just so we can get a raise, just so we can get a promotion. Our motive then is wrong. We don't show kindness and honor to the policeman or to the judge just so that we can get out of a ticket or out of a fine. That's not the right motivation. We honor, we love, and we show fidelity because I'm a child of God. I've been transformed by the wonder of his grace. And now as I live in the midst of this world, I'm not living like one who's wicked and one who's rebellious and one who lives just for himself. I'm living for God and I'm showing his glory and therefore I seek to honor him. Now another extremely humbling aspect of the catechism's understanding of this commandment is this. Patiently bear with their weaknesses and infirmities. As we live together in marriage, we know how hard this is. Patiently bear with one another's weaknesses and infirmities. It doesn't mean we put up with sin, we have to address sin, but patiently to bear with one another. And now God applies that, not just in marriage, not just with relationships that are more intimate, but all of those aspects of authority. We might be inclined to say, but God's not that strict. God's going to give me a little leeway. God's not going to care. He's not concerned about such small little things like me saying something maybe behind the back of my parents or saying something behind the back of my, my boss. Beloved, the scriptures and the catechism give us no leeway. And again, the purpose is to drive us to Christ and to cause us to realize our dependence upon him. And that's striking, is it not? The apostle gives no leeway here to these new Christians who now are adapting and adjusting to the responsibility to live in communion, in fellowship, in submission toward those whom God has put on their pathway. It may be a wife who has an ungodly husband. It may be a situation where children who are now brought to conversion have wicked parents. All of these various circumstances... God is concerned about, so to speak, small things. A small view of sin reveals a small need for a Savior. We see our sin, and we see not only it as little, small, we see it as that which violates God's will. And I need Christ. Submit. And then to submit in all things. Again, we would think there has to be some areas where we don't need to submit. We don't have to obey in all things, but there's no exception for submission. There's never a ground for rebellion, never a ground for disrespect. 
Times when we can't obey, we still need to submit. Difficult, beloved. And again, this brings us to see our pride. It brings us to see our need for Christ and for his sustaining grace. Even when those in authority have glaring weaknesses, they have infirmities that stand out, that's not an excuse. Patiently bear with them. And we're reminded again, how often does God forgive me? How does God deal with me and my weaknesses? He forgives and forgives and forgives and forgives and forgives. He forgives us, not just seven times seven. He forgives us unspeakable sins and then brings us to glory to give us to know the wonder and the joy of that life with him. Beloved, God knows what he's doing in your life and in my life. Patiently bear Pray for that grace. He's the one who put those individuals in authority. And what is he doing? He's testing you. He's going to hold them accountable. It's not your responsibility to try to make their life miserable. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Your calling is to submit in love. You're going to see in your parents, you're going to see in your teachers, you're going to see in your pastor, your elders, your rulers, many sins, many failures. Your calling is not magnify them spread them abroad no your calling is bear patiently be content to be under their authority realize the scripture is abundantly clear and teaches those weaknesses peter peter had weaknesses so great that paul had to admonish them him he had weaknesses so great that he was inclined then to deny his own lord God doesn't cast him off. God restores him. And in the congregations that he served, the members could not say, but Peter, look at what you did. Why would I have to submit to you when that's how you conducted yourself? No, no justification. Bear patiently. God is the one who directs us more than ever to the need for his grace. And what a supreme test he places us in. And what grace is necessary? And again, children, obey your parents. The application of this commandment to our children is beautiful because it requires of us a certain perspective with regard to our children. This command demonstrates explicitly that children are included in the covenant and in the kingdom of God. Because the Ten Commandments are not for the world. The Ten Commandments are for the church. And here God explicitly includes children in the realm of the church. What a beautiful truth. A truth that we lay hold on. A truth that becomes the basis for baptism. We baptize our children because we believe that God is the one who in his faithfulness incorporates them into his covenant. And so this command and this principle then requires of us that we view our children as those who are included in God's covenant. Our children as those who are found in Christ by a wonder of his grace. And we speak of our children in that manner. We address them in that way. We discipline them as those who are children of our Heavenly Father, who have but a small beginning of that new obedience, who need to hear admonitions, who are not good by nature, but who have now the wonder of God's grace in their hearts. 
And we teach them in the confidence that God will bless this instruction. God will apply it to their hearts. God is the one that will cause his word to bear fruit. And so this requires a parent's patience, long-suffering, constant prayer, establishing clear guidelines in our homes, disciplining in love and consistency. It requires of us as children that we obey our parents in the Lord, for this is good. That we do so without delay, immediately. And that we do so for God's sake. This obedience is our part of the covenant. This obedience is our love for God and the wonder of what God has done for us. You don't need an explanation as children, young people, for everything that your parents require of you. You must obey them simply because it pleases God to govern you through them. Just because your parents are sinful, just because sometimes that sin is revealed does not justify rebellion or disobedience. One exception, of course, is when parents require their children to sin. Then you don't obey. And if necessary, where there's abuse involved, you get help. You try to find someone whom you can talk to and you bring them in in order to assist in the matter. But ultimately, beloved, we look to the cross again and to Christ who alone is able to strengthen us. And he does so with this promise that thy days may be long in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. The Bible calls this the first command with promise. To honor earthly superiors is well-pleasing in God's eyes. Colossians 3 verse 20 establishes God's pleasure in this. Just as it's a joy for parents to have children who are respectful, who are obedient. So also Jehovah God is our Heavenly Father. He desires children who are respectful, who are obedient, who submit to Him and to those whom He places in authority over Him. And as we grow in our desire to honor God and to fear God and to love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, the more we will honor those who represent him in positions of authority. The more we look past their failures and their inadequacies and we see God and we see the hand of our Heavenly Father and we bear then the frustrations that come from being inferiors when we realize especially these two things. Number one, the value of my position is not dependent on what other people think of me or how they treat me. It's dependent upon God and who I am in God's eyes. My boss may treat me poorly. My teachers may not be kind to me. Perhaps even my parents have unjust expectations for me. But my value is not based on those whom God put in authority. But my value is based on Jehovah God and the wonder of what he's done in Christ for me. But secondly, that it's not my duty then to repay evil for evil. As long as I can understand that my value and my worth is not dictated by those above me and that my responsibility is not vengeance, but that every superior is going to have to answer to God. And God's dealings with them will either be merciful in Jesus Christ or far more severe than anything this earth could ever provide for them. Recognizing that, we're sobered. This one who's treating me so poorly may be a forgiven individual by God's grace and God's going to bring him to repentance or that one is going to suffer everlastingly in hell. 
And so I stand before God with a calling to live faithfully before His face. God uses this to cause us to long for heaven. The more we experience these struggles and these difficulties, the more we cry out for mercy. And we look forward to that heavenly Canaan. And that really is the promise that is given here. The first commandment with promise. He promises that we will live long in the land that he gives us. Now there was an earthly sense perhaps to that in Israel. But even for Israel, this did not apply merely to the land of Canaan. Primarily, this didn't mean wealth, prosperity, longevity in an earthly way. It referred to fellowship with God. It referred to the essence of God's covenant. Live with me and enjoy life. And that's the reference for us. Heaven. This is a reward of grace. The land that God gives us is the new heaven and the new earth where God will work in us perfection where there will be no more struggles against that sinful rebellious nature that we have where we will be able to walk humbly before him in perfect obedience and honor and where there will be no more sin and so those struggles then are taken away and we're able to live in the joy and the conscious wonder of God's goodness and God's mercy that fails never beloved by God's grace not only do we know forgiveness and mercy but by God's grace, we know Christ. And we know the power of His Spirit in order to strengthen us that we might walk before His face and that we might give Him the honor, the love, and the fidelity that's required as we show it to those whom He has placed in authority over us. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, forgive us of our rebellious natures. Forgive us our pride our self-seeking, and work in us that humility by which truly we might honor those whom thou hast placed in authority, that we might love even as thou hast loved us, that we might forgive even as we have been forgiven, and that we might live as those who are not overcome of evil, but who overcome evil with good, walking humbly before thee in the knowledge of the wonder of our salvation in Jesus Christ. We pray this for his sake. Amen.